Hello. Oh, good morning, John. Well, hello, Dan Benjamin. You're all back from uh, from Sketchfest and everything. Oh yeah, yeah, all yeah. back from that. Yeah, yeah, yeah back uh, back in the saddle again. Nice. It's, yeah, it's been a while. That's what you were gonna say. It has been too long. Well, has it been more than a week? Was it just a week since we we spoke it's last? It's or? been like a couple weeks because we've got yeah. the the, uh, the Patreon supporters are antsy. They're getting uh, oh, are they? They're, are they're, they? They're like I'm I'm jonesing for my next. Uh, and I said you, <laughs> you and me both, buddy. Uh-huh. Now listen, I wanna I wanna talk about really quick, John. I wanna address the do something weird. I wanna address the listeners. Drive dive straight in and uh, and tell them that um, there we have two T-shirts currently available. They'll only be available for a little bit longer. We talked about it just a little in the after show. We mentioned it once in there, but I just want to mention up front because this is a limited engagement. I don't think people appreciate that. And uh, and we'd like to sell more than uh, than we've already sold. So that would involve actually telling people that they can buy something. Apparently, you need right. to tell people that something exists before they buy it. I didn't know that. Um, no. Yeah. Uh, you know, you in the record business, maybe you knew it, but I, this is news to me. You actually have to tell some, someone about something and then they buy it. So we have two t-shirts. The link will be in the show notes. Uh, so you can go to five by five dot TV. I'm going to type, I'm going to type it in right now just to test it. You're going to go to five by five dot TV slash roadwork slash one seven four. And the link to the two t-shirts, the first shirt that we have is uh, is a an illustration of John and his truck. I won't spoil the surprise if you haven't seen it, so go look at that. And the second one is the Going Places Gang t-shirt. Yay! So uh, both of those are for sale. We teamed up with the guys over at Mediocrity, which is the best name for anything ever. And they, uh, they're the people behind meh.com, uh, longtime friends and sponsors. And they've done an excellent job. I have some of these shirts right here and they're amazing. So uh, go get yours. They're very affordable and they support us directly. And it makes a big difference to us if you get them because then you're the, you know, the true fans, John, I think will get them, but we want everyone, even, even the fake fans to have them. (laughs) So uh, go there, go to the link that's there in the show notes. Again, it's uh, the latest episode that you're probably listening. If you're listening to it right now, the show notes will be there in your app. There'll be a link right there that says support us and buy the damn t-shirts and uh, click that and go buy something. And thank you. I, uh, I've seen these shirts in the wild now, both on, nice. uh, you know, you see them on the internet because people have posted pictures of themselves and they're just as amazing as I hoped, but I've seen, uh, people came, uh, to Sketchfest wearing these shirts. Really? That's great. And, um, and they uh, both shirts in their own way pop, and you know a lot of times uh, people will put two shirts up at the same time, and the shirts are kind of either variations on a theme or they're, you know, they're different shirts, but but they sort of it's sort of like oh which one do I get? But this the, these two shirts are so different from one another and both so good. I'm very proud of them, Dan. You did a wonderful job. Well, I'm, I just want to you know I just seek your approval, John, and I'm I have it I now. I feel I like know. I nothing I can nothing can stop me now. They're really really great. Really, really great. I was I was super pleased to see them in the awesome. world. Awesome, that is awesome. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, nice ad, nice ad, Dan. Nice yeah. embedded ad right at the top of the and show. I right like at that. The, you know, it's top loaded, front loaded. Yeah. Well, that way people can't uh, we, say that they missed it. They're now they have no excuse as to why they didn't uh, get one, except uh, being a jerk. Well, you know, maybe they didn't listen to this episode until later. Mm. 
I went to Patreon. Nice. I went there. I was like the in physical. Oh, yep. very cool. I was in San Francisco. I went. They they uh, they wrote me. They were like, "Hello, content creator. Hello, <laughs> you know, influencer. Come to come visit us." Did you influence you know, them? I hope. You know, I know <laughs> I that say you guy. better dry. That guy Jack, who yeah. who it's his thing. I you know I know him because he's in a band called Pomplamoose, mm-hmm. and he came on the Joko Cruise, and we've played shows together. You know, like he's just a he's just a guy, a band guy, guy with a lot of uh, like a indefatigable energy uh but uh but now he's ceo of a company that has a whole big office with you know people there's a room where you can work where you can bring your dog to work and there's 75 kinds of cereal and (laughs) does he wear a suit tie now well i didn't see him he was Uh, out on tour see that's the other thing is he's he, he's untouchable now. He's moved into that space where That's you right. can't access him directly, even if you're friends. Right. right. God, right. I want I mean, that. He's, you know, he's, he's younger than me. I wanted to go in and give him a, give him a noogie. And, mm-hmm. and it turns out, you know, oh, sorry, he's on his helicopter. Uh, but I went, I sat in a little, one of those little rooms uh, that you see in offices where you, you're like two people are talking in a, at a little table and it's in a little room. It's like here. Let's go into this little conference. Oh. It's a little conference, <laughs> like where you'd get a, tar- a tarot reading. Yeah, it only fits <laughs> two people, and and once you're in there, you're like, oh, there's no, um, there's no air circulation in here, right? Like, uh, <laughs> you, you get hot really fast. <laughs> yeah. And when we when we walked over to this little room, it's a closet, you know, with a window. Uh, we walked over, and the the woman I was with, she was like, "Well, I hope no one's in our meeting room because I scheduled it." And we got there, and there were two like bearded guys in there, and she, <laughs> and we can see them through the window. Yes, she kind of like had to walk over and kind of tap on it or open the door, and they were like, you know, they were very nice about it. like, oh, you know, got out of there. But I'm wondering, you know, it's a big open plan office, right? So you need these little spaces to have, I guess, to have confidential conversations. You need a place where there's no oxygen, <laughs> but there is a window. So <laughs> if you're if you're mad at somebody, you can everybody can tell because you're in there, you know, being mad at them. I don't even think they're soundproof. <laughs> I see these on Twitter, right? Where that now companies that have these places that don't uh, that don't have closets to build out, they're actually built. They're buying cubes, like little glass uh, phone booths that you would put in the in the center of the office somewhere. That people would go in to have these confidential conversations. Whew. Anyway, yikes. Uh, but we walked around. I met all the team. You know, there's it's a big team now. Engineers and customer-facing UI um, uh, developers and, um, uh, I don't know, other other names of, of jobs. But she was, uh, she was very interested in, in talking to us about, you know, like um, – it seems to me like Patreon is trying to create a, uh, trying to create an experience for for Patreoners, people who are using Patreon, right. not for both both sides, but people that are people like us that have a show that has a Patreon. The company is interested in like how can we help? How can we facilitate? Mm. And so you know, I was there. It was a fact finding mission. I was kind of I was I was there to listen. Um, there was a, you know, she was, seemed happy to see me. It was a meeting is what it was. It was a meeting. <laughs> we had a what, meeting. That's what they call those. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I did. Feel, you feel, I hear people did talk you feel about, heard in the meeting? Were you were you seen in the meeting? <laughs> like, were you? I mean, that's a a really good question. <laughs> yeah, uh, I don't go to a lot of meetings. I hear about them, right? People say like, "Oh, meetings, meetings, meetings." Right. And so this was one of those. It was a meetings, 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 and I, and at the end, she was like, "You know, can I, would you like some cereal on the way out?" Or you know, there was a stage. Jack has built a stage there where you could get up and play. Or people come and play. There was someone sitting at the piano, just kind of noodling along at the piano. And she mm. pointed to him and she said, uh, you know, that's like our CTO or something. Uh, and he's just like, no, he's not bad at the piano, but he's just noodling, you know, bling, yeah. bling, 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 bling. People are, are walking around. If I worked in a place like that, I don't know. Here's my question, Dan. How yeah. do they know you're working? How do they gauge that you are earning your pay? Well, because, I, don't, I don't think that they can. I don't think in you a, know you're in wandering a, around, you're yeah. b- bouncing a basketball with one hand and <laughs> and and solving a Rubik's cube with another. Um, uh, like, are you? What's the who? I don't know. It's very confusing. And I walked out of there not being sure. What what all had happened? <laughs> that's that's we, just called a successful meeting in San Francisco. If you right, leave knowing what the hell just happened, you're screwed. <laughs> I don't feel like I don't feel like I came out of there uh, better or worse. Or you know, it, it's not. Like I feel either like it was, of us was, had a real. Did you experience scene? lost time or anything like that? Like an abduction? Mm, mm, I see what you mean. <laughs> Like you, um, like you, you, you remember walking toward it and the next thing you know, you're in an Uber to going toward your hotel and your, your shirts uh, inside out. <laughs> there was at the end, she did, she did a thing where she, uh, she, she showed me the kitchen. She showed me the array of <laughs> basically what looked like parting gifts. She, and she said, you know, take whatever you want. Uh huh. <laughs> And I looked at it and it was not like, you know, if there was like a box of Hershey bars, I would have been like, <laughs> there was that time you got all that underwear. I got, well, yeah, that was not, that wasn't a Patreon. No, <laughs> but, uh, but the, so looking at the stuff, you know, I didn't want any granola or anything. And no. so there was some, uh, there was some gum, there were packs of gum and I was like, Oh, gum. And so she reached in and, and got me and got a pack of gum. And I was like, oh, and you know, the other flavor too. And so she got a second pack of gum. So it was, if I, if she'd said like, take whatever you want, I would have grabbed five packs of gum. Right. Companies, you know, they're, they got, they're, they're, there's like 70 refrigerators against one wall that have every kind of everything. Uh, well, there were, there was oat milk, soy, rice, almond, uh, there were so many milks, Dan, <laughs> there were so many nuts and seeds that had been milked and put into <laughs> cartons, but, she, but so she, but she, you know, she was like, she, she stood in between me and the gum and gave me one pack each. And when she got, gave me the second pack, I kind of felt a little bit like I'd already pushed my luck a little bit, like two packs of gum. So it did feel a little bit at the end, like. Uh, like, like you, like you would give a pack of gum to a kid, like on your way out, like not so that your so that your trip here wasn't for nothing. Why don't you take a Gatorade or, you know, like, why don't you take a, yes, take 
a thing. Like, yeah. would you like a pencil? That wasn't bad though. I mean, I still have, I'm still like working my way through one of those packs of gum. Mm-hmm. I've got it right here. Uh, although I've learned I can't chew gum on the show. It's too much, um, too much lip smacking. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so oh, that's uh, not to, not to report in, you know, like Patreon didn't, I don't think that uh, our show is like right up there in the top, you know, point one percent of their of their uh, Patreons. There are a lot of people that are making a million dollars an hour. Yeah, but it, but it was nice that they um it was nice that they invited me there. I feel I don't know why my name came up on their um on their list of people to invite, but there it is. It was a great experience. It was a it was, every time I go to San Francisco, I want to have at least one sort of illuminating tech company experience. Yeah, no, I don't play. You. you know, where I get inside the beast a little bit, I walk <laughs> around, I get a pack of gum and uh <laughs> and this time it was Patreon. Oh, I said to her when she gave me the gum, I was like there's no like Patreon swag. I would expect that you'd be giving me a sweatshirt or something. You know, like I want to walk out of here head to toe Patreon stuff. Yeah. Tote bag, a hat. Absolutely. And she said, oh, the swag, you know, we just had a run on the swag because it's the end of the year. And um, and so we're getting, you know, we're getting a bu- we're re-upping all that stuff and we'll send it to you. We'll send mm. you the swag. Okay. I'll believe that when I see yeah, it. I'll right. believe that tote bag when I, when I tote it. So that's my, that's, that's my San Francisco uh, story, Dan. It's really more of an anecdote. Not a story. Dan Kennedy has been explaining uh, on his Twitter feed recently that um, anecdotes aren't stories, and it's and it's a it's a great uh, it's a great lesson for uh, writers and storytellers mm-hmm. to remember that just because you have an anecdote, it's not all the way to a story. Right. That was I. You know, it's between an anecdote and a story. I just, it doesn't really have an ending. I right. Didn't, I mean, it doesn't sound like anything actually happened. No, there's no dramatic How arc. long were you it in there? Time. It was just time spent. Uh, I was there. I think those meetings are scheduled for an hour. And if they last 45 minutes, um, it's not like the meetings that, that other people have in offices where it's scheduled for an hour and it goes to an hour 45 or whatever. Right. Honestly, I have no idea what happens in offices. It may be, it may be that when your meeting is done, it's done. If you schedule it for an hour, you probably have another meeting to go to. Yeah. That's probably, that's, I think what happened here. It's, it's unknowable to me whether, uh, the woman that I met with had ever heard of me or I, I'm sure she's never listened to any of the, podcasts I do. I'm not sure why she was assigned to me. She's not the person that was emailing me. It's it all her very out of her confusing. Cube, pulled her out of her cube and, uh, you know, well, there are no cubes. Man. They just sit at big, wide open tables. <clears throat> oh, that's not good. With the, and then every once in a while a tumbleweed blows through and then someone on a unicycle throws a basketball at it. We would like to say thank you very much to Brooklyn and listen, I'm going off copy here. They give you copy. They want you to read it. Don't care. I'm going to tell you my experience with Brooklyn. I heard the story about Brooklyn and they talk about how 
you spend a third of your life basically in your sheets, in your bed, right? Wouldn't you want them to be comfortable? Wouldn't you want them to be nice? Well, you know, but it's easy to forget about that. It's easy to not think about that. It's easy to say, man, sheets are sheets. You know, what do I need new ones for? That's completely missing the incredible difference that a nice set of sheets can make. I now only use Brooklinen sheets. Once I got a set of these, I was sold on it. And now this is what we got. It's all I will use. It's amazing. I used to go to a hotel and I would say, man, the sheets in this hotel are so nice. I don't even like them anymore. The Brooklinen sheets are that much better, but that's actually where they got the idea. This uh, company was started uh, by a husband and wife team. And they went and they stayed at these really fancy like hotels and stuff. And they said, wow, these sheets are so good. Why don't we have them in our, our house? Why can't we get them? And they went and priced them and said, well, that's why, because they cost thousands of dollars to get a decent set of sheets and it shouldn't be that way. And so that's what Brooklyn is all about. They want you to have amazing sheets, but they sell direct to you. You're not going through a middleman. You're not going through some big consumer operation. It's direct from the Brooklyn and folks. And, uh, and, and that's, that's awesome. They're actually, we're the first company to do that, but now they do a lot more than just sheets. They do bathroom towels. They do shower curtains. They do bath mats. They've even launched ultra soft loungewear that I, if, if you guys are listening, Hey, Brooklyn and send me some, I want to try that. They're awesome. And what they've got is awesome luxury products without the luxury markup. So go to Brooklyn and it's spelled B-R-O-O-K. Brooke Linen, L-I-N-E-N, brooklinen.com. Go there, start things out right every night with some great sheets. And here's the deal. You're going to get 10% off your first order and free shipping on all the new sheets when you use promo code ROADWORK. Again, you've got to go to brooklinen.com to do this. Go there, use a promo code ROADWORK, and you'll get that 10% off I told you about. And uh, hey, New Yorkers, if you're listening, you can get... These sheets, which they call the internet's favorite sheets and more in real life. They have a first store, a brand new store open in Brooklyn. It's at 127 Kent Avenue in Williamsburg. I don't know what any of that means, but for people who are in Brooklyn, I think that means something to you. So go check the store out. It's at 127 Kent Ave in Williamsburg. Tell them we sent you and uh, go try out some Brooklyn and sheets. They're awesome. 10% off with that promo code roadwork. Thanks very much to Brooklyn and for making this show possible. I hate those open offices. I, I've spent so much time in my corporate stooge years in an open office. And I, to this day, I still don't understand. I mean, cubes, cubes are bad because they're confining and they make you feel like you're not a, a human being. But at least you get the, it, it, there's no privacy in a cube, but at least you get the, the semblance, you get the, the, the pretense of privacy because you've got three walls and you're not just completely exposed to the whole world. Just, just your back and everything on your screen is exposed to the world. But you as a human feel like you can kind of cower in somewhat some sense of peace inside the cube. Unlike an open office where you're just, you're just sitting there exposed to everything. You hear every conversation, you hear every sound everyone makes, you hear the sound bleeding out of people's headphones. Everybody that walks by, you see them, they see you, it's a distraction. 
You know, anything, anything that happens where there's just slight movement, you're, it's going to catch your eye. You hear somebody's dumb conversation bleeding out of the conference room a million miles away. Open offices is just, it's no good. It's no what, good. What do, what do you think? I, what do you think it would be like if I were in an op- open office, Dan? Do you think there'd be a place for me there? No, hell no. Can you choose? Like, if you don't want your back to the no. elevator, they just they just point to a chair and say that's where you are. Usually, you don't, uh, you, well, John, it depends on the size of the company that you're in. If you're in a bigger company, they're usually going to try and seat you with the group that you're working in. Uh, with your team, right. sure. So, so if there's a team of, you know, 5, 10, 20 people, you're going to be there. I mean, in some cases, you might have a whole floor, a whole half a floor that's the group that you're in, you know. So if you're doing support, you're going to sit with the support group. If you're a developer, you're over here. Designers go over here. Salespeople, sure. you want them as far away as possible. They're going to be over in this area. So you don't group people by height or by no, uh, no. by interest in music or something. It seemed like seemed like if there were a bunch of people in the company that like classic rock, you could put them all together, and then there'd just be one radio I just love playing. That like, idea that would be genius. Right? Just pick your team by by what kind of music you want playing at a low volume. That would be great. No, they don't do yeah. that, and and they don't in or, general. They don't even let you pick where you want to be. Uh, the more senior people, in my experience. Who are there longer? The only reason they have better areas, cube areas, is because they're they're there, right? And then they like, oh, did you hear uh, Roderick's quitting? Oh, he is. Yeah, he's got two weeks. I got dibs on his on his cube. And oh, so they get the, dibs. Yeah, and so like I've seen it where it wasn't official, but I've seen people literally standing outside of the cube with their computer under their arm and their monitor on the floor next to them so that when the person that's leaving is leaving, they're like setting their crap up inside of the cube just so no one else can get it. I've seen that more than once. It just sucks, dude. Those things suck. Oh, wow. Lord of the Flies. Oh, God. I feel like all the people that like to eat stinky stuff at lunch at their desks should all that. Oh, really? That's everyone. I everyone definitely feel that. like there should be different there should be different airplanes for those people. I always kept my cube completely devoid of anything because I can imagine that. Well, I mean half the reason was I could quit at any moment. I always was ready to quit at any given moment, any day of the week, any hour of the day. If something felt wrong, up uh, I'm out. I'm out. Wow, interesting, Dan. And I was right. So so but the other the dead giveaway of when somebody when it seems like somebody is on their way out is that their cubes start. Well, you didn't used to have a picture of your kids over. No, I never had, never had a picture. Didn't you have a plant? Over? No, I never, I don't keep a plant in here. Not a plant oh, guy. And then, then like a day later, they're like I have a, a five hour dentist appointment on, uh, on Thursday that I'm going to have to be at <laughs> like, Oh, great. And then, then they give their notice. So I, I learned you don't want to give any, cues to people you don't want to give away your tricks or your secrets it's like when you're when you're when there's somebody slow driving in front of you yeah you don't want to telegraph to them that you're about to turn left because they'll turn left so you don't put your Uh turn signal on until the last possible second ideally after they've already started accelerating away then you can put your turn signal on that way you're not letting them know how to continue to assault you by driving too slow in front of you it's the same thing in the office what you do is you keep your desk and everything, nothing, nothing there. And like, well, are you leaving? No, I've been here a year. I'm not leaving, not going anywhere. <laughs> and then, you know, what you're, what you're describing, Dan, is, is tradecraft. Yes. Uh, 
This is this is just your version of keeping the cops and the spies off of your tail. You're right. You're 100 percent correct. Wow. I like I like that you have a that you have like a sort of nascent uh, like espionage thing going on in you all the time. I mean, I, I that's a goal. It's a goal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Never let never telegraph what you're doing. Never you know. No, I don't want if that's anybody... your contact across the street. Don't look at him. No. I don't want oh. anybody knowing about me or knowing what I'm up to or knowing my motivations or anything unless I decide right. to share it. If I decide to share it, have at it. But I want An someone open guessing. plan offices. That's terrible for you in that case. Oh, it's horrible. Every little Look over every your little shoulder. Thing, every little noise, every little movement. Ugh, just, <clears throat> they're looking at you. They're watching you. And, yeah. you're, and you're watching them. Yeah. But if you get, I, an, I see, wouldn't mind that. The, well, the th- the thing that's that's nice though is if you and I, th- this was never me. But if you get finally into a position where you're like a manager or a director level, mm-hmm. uh, I was only management or or director or C level of very small companies, so it it this was never a thing. But those right. people get an office, and so right. you're in cubes that are surrounded along the walls and the windows by offices. This right. has two effects. One is it, it prevents you from uh, having to ever even, even accidentally look out a window that will never happen because the offices block that. So we wouldn't want you to do that. And then the yeah. other thing is the directors or managers, whoever in the offices, they can kind of stick their head out and look around and sort of survey what you're doing, surveil what you're doing. I think. Yes. And, uh, and they can do that from this position of secrecy and power in their office. Well, you know, my daughter's mother is a, uh, she's a vice president at a pretty large tech company wow. and she, uh, she and her immediate team, um, they just sit at a big table and the only way that you can tell that she is the vice president is that she has the seat closest to the window. Ah, but they're all standing desks, right? So there's people standing, and it's a it's a big table that sort of ends at the window, and she is closest to the window, and that's it. And I look in there, and I'm like, you know, you're vice president, don't you? Wouldn't you want a some kind of place where you could close a door? And she, you know, she points over to the one of those airless phone booths and says like, Oh, I can, p- I can close the door there. If I need to talk to somebody, I'm like, not, I don't mean need to talk to somebody. I mean, just go in and close the door. Like that seems like the number one reason you would even try to get promoted at a job to somehow one day get behind a door. Um, but that's, but she's like, well, I, you know, it's much easier to work with my team. And I'm like, Oh, you've been drinking the Kool-Aid for too long. You think this is good. <sighs> I don't know. I don't know. I, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm behind a door right now. I could be, I, I'm basically behind 32 proxies here. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah. and as ma- as many proxies as I can get behind, I'll, I'll get behind. Um, I just got an email from someone at the wall street journal. Just as I'm sitting here, it's a text really. She's really, really nagging me. What do they want? This just person. an interview, a live performance, well, live show. A live show at the Wall Street Journal. No, they've interviewed me. Play a wedding? uh, I'm not going to reply to her right now. That that would be a bad thing. Uh, No, they've interviewed me, and 
And it's one of these things. It's a, it's a thing. They want to talk to me about how a podcaster earns a living. And the conversation is one that I think a lot of people in our line of work uh, would be very shy about having with a journalist. Yeah. Because we're all a little shy, just as just as people in music always were. And I think it may be a, a it may be a thing about freelancers, or actually it just may be a thing that uh, may be a quality of the Western world where we're, we're super shy about other people knowing how, uh, how the money works, right? Because nobody wants someone else to, uh, it's a, it's a, it's a tricky combo, right? You don't want in our culture, at least you don't want to be perceived as bragging about money at any time, at any place or time. You never want to say how much you earn no matter where you work. Right. And I think in some businesses to say what you earn creates a disturbance in the force. Like if you work in an office and you say what you earn and the person that does the same job as you is earning less like that, you have now created a problem, an HR problem. But in freelance work and in podcasting, especially it's like all this information, this is true in music too. All there's so much information that is hidden. Like nobody, if you want to know how many records the new pornographers have sold, that information is not available to you unless you pay for a very expensive service called SoundScan. And record labels, other places, there are a lot of places that pay for SoundScan. And if you know someone that works at a record label, you can write them and say, how many records have the new pornographers sold? And they just type it in and there it is. There's the information. But, but that information is not available to, uh, the average person. And it's, I can see arguments for why, but at the same time, if everyone in the world could just go on their computer and say, how many records of the new pornographers sold? Right. I, I don't know why that's, that would, how, how that would be a problem. It's, it, it wouldn't, it wouldn't create a problem. It would just be interesting. In fact, it would be illuminating. Mm -hmm. And I think what it is, is that SoundScan has, they discovered that they have information that people will pay for. And so they charge for it. It's not, they don't have to, it's not necessary that the number of records sold be a secret. Uh, it's just that somebody found out that, that they can pay, that they make people pay for that info. Right. But how much money bands make? I think if people knew, if people knew how much money the new pornographers made last year, it would be, it would be really interesting. You know, you would, you would have a sense of how, how much, um, like what did Patton Oswalt make last year? If you knew, I think some people would learn that and, and they would be surprised that it was so little mm. and other people would would get it and they would be surprised it was so much. But without knowing it, we all look at patent and we go, he must be rich. He's a big star. Well, we don't know. And honestly, we don't know where he, where he made the lion's share of his money last mm -hmm. year. It's right. probably not on his Twitter account. No. Like he's done some TV shows. Maybe, maybe the money from the King of Queens 
in reruns is still the most, it's still the biggest, uh, earner for him. I mean, we, every single person in my line of work and yours, although your line of work is different from mine. Um, if we knew where they made their money and how much, I think it would be better, not worse for the culture at large, right? For just the, for, um, for peace in the Valley. But that information is like so jealously guarded. And one of the things that endeared me to Sean Nelson, when I first started working with him, um, was when he offered me the job in Harvey danger Mm -hmm. in that conversation, he didn't reserve it for a second conversation. He said, I'd like you to be in Harvey danger. It pays $500 a week plus $20 a day per diem. And we're going to pay all of your expenses and here. And at the end, this is what it's, this is what the money's going to look like. Badoom. And at that time, it was the most candid conversation I'd had about money in my life. Mm. No one had ever said, here is the amount of money. This is the job. And this is the, you know, like even jobs. I mean, you, I would get a job and the person would say it pays $6 an hour. But even then there was some trick later on about like, well, you had to punch out for lunch. You had to, you couldn't punch in until you could be here 45 minutes before your job started and be working already, but you couldn't punch in until five, you know, all this, there's just tricks. Everybody's got a trick. And that experience of, of Sean, um, sort of made me realize that it's a, that there's this kind of Protestant reticence about money in our culture that is, I, that I think is something that is caustic, you know, that spreads trouble. And I understand why I understand why people don't want other people to know how much they earn. And I understand why, uh, but I think it's more of a divide and conquer problem. Like if, if everybody in a company knew what everybody else made, it could be a real problem, but, but it also might inspire the company to stop being sneaky, right? right? I mean, sure. why, why do two people that have the same job get paid differently? If you can't explain it clearly so that everyone understands, then there's got, then there's, something's up, something's going wrong or something's, something's being, there's a little bit of something tricky happening. Mm-hmm. Now I know if you posted everybody's salary on the wall, it, it could create real problems at a company, but but I'm not sure whether I'm not sure what that's an in, indictment of. In my case, I try to be candid with people when I when I talk to them. When they say, "Well, wait a minute, how, you you make a living as a podcaster? How?" Question mark. Question mark. And there's a there's a, a I think a major impulse in in people in show business or who are freelancers to kind of wave their hands and say like, Oh, it's a mystery or, Oh, you know, we sell ads, la, 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 because of a, because of some kind of fear, fear that people are going to, um, uh, 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 not have sympathy for you or that they're, that they're going to feel, um, 
they're going to develop some contempt for you in some way. Mm -hmm. And in particular, now that we are, uh, that we have uh, crowdfunding supporters, there's that additional fear that like, oh, well, somebody that's giving us a dollar a month or $5 a month or $20 a month is going to discover that we're actually earning money and then they're going to resent us. Why am I giving them $5 if they're earning money? You know, this kind of logic. And when Ken Jennings uh, won his Jeopardy a couple of weeks ago, mm-hmm. which incidentally, yesterday he came over here and he brought his fucking greatest of all time trophy. This thing's two and a half feet tall. And just sat it on the desk came, and, and did the show just to sort of. Yeah. Yeah. When he came in, he, he had the trophy under his arm and I was like, huh, what are you, what's going on? And he was like, he didn't have an explanation. He said something like, oh, I thought maybe we would take some pictures with it. Or like, I thought maybe you'd get a picture with it. And I was like, well, I mean, we took pictures with it when we were down at the, down at the show, but yes. Okay. Well, so he set the greatest of all time trophy on the desk here where we do our show it sat there the whole time but then dan he left and left it here what and it wasn't and i was like hmm and as we were leaving the room like i i didn't look back i he was carrying a bag and i was like he probably put the trophy in the bag but then you know at nine o'clock at night i was sitting upstairs i was like is that trophy still down there and i went down and sure enough there it was and so i took it up and i was walking around the house carrying this greatest of all time trophy. And so of course, you know, I started like taking hilarious selfies with it. Of course. And at about 1130 at night, he texted me and was like, did I leave my trophy there? Uh, so anyway, right now I have the greatest of all time jeopardy trophy here that I'm just, I'm just, I think I'm going to go drive down to the drive down to Burien town and walk around and see if people will pay me $5 to get a picture with it. I mean, why I mean, not? You've got it. That's a business opportunity. Only, You're a business. Sure. Man. There's only one of there's only one of them, right? Like just, if I went to the supermarket and was just like standing outside with the Girl Scouts. Yeah. And uh, they're like, you know, you want to buy some Thin Mints? And I'm like, want to get your picture taken with Ken Jennings, greatest <laughs> of all time trophy? <laughs> which yeah. one are you going to let? La- which one are you going to la- like? Uh, which one is going to, going to serve you longer? The Thin Mints or this, or this picture? But anyway, when, when Ken won a million dollars on television, one of the first things he, he thought, I mean, he said this to me there at the studio was I, I wonder, like, I hope that me winning a million dollars doesn't mean that people stop giving to our Patreon because our Patreon has been such a big part of that show, a big part of like what allowed us to leave how stuff works or I'm sorry, iHeartMedia and go on our own was that we had a Patreon, you know, right. and it really, it, it's that company, as much as I mock it, it has given me l- like Liberty this year. It has rescued me from a doldrum. I mean, last year at this time I was $40,000 in debt and in a state of panic mm. and it was Patreon a company that I have that I think is kind of hilarious that's run by a guy that's probably right now on a hoverboard somewhere bouncing a basketball and solving a Rubik's cube. Yes. 
And so Ken says, what if people, what if people see me win this million dollars and they, then they say, wait a minute, he doesn't need my dollar a month. And in fact, what happened was, of course, that the money that we, uh, that people pledged just, just went, just went up, you know, it, nobody stopped giving only more people started and it, and it, it really like, I feel like it validates the, the idea that it, because the, you know, the amount that we're earning that you and I are earning on Patreon, it's visible to people and people are giving to the show because they like it. Not because, you know, they're not, they're not greedy in the, in the way that you expect them to be, which is like, well, they don't need my money. I mean, some people think that way, of course. But so the Wall Street Journal wrote me and said, we want to know how people make a living at podcasting. We want to write an article about it. Are you willing to be candid about it? And I thought about it a lot. And, you know, I have the same sort of embarrassment or shame or fear that everybody does about saying like, well, here's, here are my debts. Here are my bills. Here's the money I earn. Here's how I earn it from different sources. And at the end of the day, this is how much money I make. Right. And at the end of the year, this is how much money that is after all is said and done. And so the, the journal writer sent me some clips of other people that, uh, had had art that she'd written articles about. And it was, it was hilarious, right? Because it's the wall street journal. And so, she, so she said like, Oh, I've done this. You know, I've, I've profiled a lot of artists. Let me send you some stuff. And there was an article that where the artist was like, well, I quit my job as an investment banker because I, all I ever really wanted to do was be a potter. <laughs> And I don't really have that many assets except for a $4 million brownstone in Park Slope. And I have um, like $10 million in the bank. But I'm wondering, can I survive as a potter? Here's my, you know, here's the money I, I, I have coming in from pottery and, you know, and here's the, here's my mortgage payment. But I bought my brownstone for $150,000 in 1987, so... And I read this article and I'm just like, this is hilarious. This is a, this is a rich person right. who is doing pottery and the Wall Street, this is what the Wall Street Journal considers to be a struggling artist. There was another couple that were like, we're, you know, we're 35 and we own six bars in New Orleans. Can we retire at 50? And the, you know, and the journal, oh, because the journal hires or they have financial advisors who, uh, who, uh, read your, uh, all your numbers, and then they offer you financial advice. And, uh, so that's the, I guess the point of the article is it lays out your thing. And then at the end, there's some sort of like, here's what you should do. You should take 5% and put it in a mutual fund. That's, you know, keyed to the, keyed to the environmental index or whatever. And I actually could use some financial advice, frankly, right now. My only, my only idea is that I should have bought Bitcoin, uh, 12 years ago, which is not a great investment strategy to, 
to desire to have have bought Bitcoin at a time in the past. Hmm. Anyway, so she's now, she's pressuring me. I've talked to her a couple of times. She's pressuring me now just because she's a writer and she's got a deadline and she's like, you know, you, you were going to send me over your electric bill so that I could, you know, add in your electric bill to your bills. But I feel like I'm going to go through with this. I'm just going to lay it out there because I don't, because I feel like, first of all, that me making a living at podcasting is kind of a miracle. It still is amazing to me. It's super validating, like life validating. But there are a lot of people that want to get into podcasting. And I also, you know, I want to express to everybody that it is both possible and also hard and unlikely, I guess, just like music. It is possible. It's also hard and unlikely. Like you need luck, you need friends, you need access, you need a lot of things. But it's also like a, I don't don't mean to describe my own story as a heartwarming story, but it certainly has warmed my heart. Heartwarming, I I would say it is. It's heartwarming. Yeah. I think more than anything – I, I came to a place with the with the rock music thing where when people would ask me about the about the money, I would say, you know, in the end, after a decade of laying the groundwork and of basically working for free, my music career arrived at a place where I was employing between four and seven people at any given moment. And and by employing, I mean that they were all working as contractors, basically. I, they weren't like full-time employees with benefits. Right. I was paying, you know, five to seven people as contractors. I had uh, I had relationships with half a dozen businesses that were collecting money on my behalf and and performing services for me. Um. And so ultimately what I was, was a small dental, dental practice (laughs) or a hair hair salon or something. Right. Like I had worked, I had worked my, uh, for 20 years basically to create a business that was on the scale of a small business of any kind. Like if you had a, if you had a storefront, if you were manufacturing something, if you were, you know, at, at the point at which you are paying five different people and getting money from five to seven different sources, you know, you're running a small business and, and, and it, and that's what it is ultimately it's, um, and you're lucky if what you're making is something that you, that you designed yourself or that you, that you feel proud of. And in that sense, a, a band and songs at least financially are the same as if you were making really nice tables or cutting boards or 3d printing little houses that you built, you know, doll houses. I mean, all that stuff. If you can, if you can get to a place where that's sustainable yeah, and you've got, and you're paying people and you're helping them and you hope that you're creating a good work environment. So that's what happened with, the band Mm -hmm. and now you know podcasting is is super different especially since i have four shows and i have you know i'm probably i have 
if you include my music stuff, I have relationships, business relationships with a dozen companies now. Yeah, sure. Stuff coming and going, maybe more, you know, 20. Um, anyway, I know, and, and because I'm in business with you, right, because I'm in business with all these different people, if I am super um, transparent with the Wall Street Journal, then it is a kind of transparency that involves other people. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how much to mask who my partners are or to, you know, to say like, well, th- these, and, and I said to her, like, these are rough amounts. I'm not, uh, you know, I don't think you need to know, like, to the decimal place what's in my checking account. But, you know, and, and but I'm not saying generally, like, between five and $50,000 either. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm saying gen- pretty sp- within a within a pretty specific range, a kind of general amount. But I don't know. How do you feel about that kind of transparency? How do you how do you how does it make you feel when I say I'm talking to the Wall Street Journal and they're going to write? And it's not going to be. It's not like some cover story. It's going to be some sidebar, like oh, and then you know, out on the West Coast. Here's a guy that's basically making what the rest of us would consider interest payments on our boats, except it's his whole career. Ha, ha, ha. <laughs> Let's give him some financial advice. <laughs> hey, right. kid, you know, put some pennies in a, in a swear jar and maybe you'll have enough to retire. But, uh, but does that, does that create anxiety in you? Does people, no. does knowing, does having people know what you make make you anxious? No, no. I mean, I'm not, I'm not, you know, sitting there like sharing every penny I make and everything I earn, but, um, no, I mean, it generally speaking doesn't really, doesn't really bother me. I, you know, right, cause we're, it, we're, we're honest, right? We're, we're making an honest living. There's nothing, there's nothing sneaky about it. No, I mean, like we show up, we do shows and, and, and then we get paid for those. And then the other side of it for me is, you know, I run, I run fireside and, people pay to use that. And I pay a lot of money in, you know, bandwidth and hosting and for other people who help me with it. And I think the number is always like anytime that I hear a number that somebody makes or supposedly makes, it's almost universally wrong. And either the people will say, Oh, I, I wish I made, you know, or like you'll hear someone's net worth. You'll look at one of those stupid websites, like Brad Pitt's net worth is $500 billion. And He's like, I wish it was that much money. And, you know, I mean, you know, people have a lot of money and they make a lot of money, but it's almost impossible to guesstimate how much somebody has or earns or what that really looks like at the end of the day when you're talking about expenditures. Like I have to pay for both of my, both of my kids are in a, John, they're in a private school now. I don't, oh! I don't even talk about it. I don't even want to talk about Why it. Why am I giving you a dollar on your Patreon private school person? They've been in public school up until this year. Both of them. Yeah. And they'll be in private school for a few years and then they'll be back in public school again. But like, that's expensive. Yes. Um, and, uh, and so like, is that taken? So, you know, I'm making up numbers. You hear, oh, well, this guy makes six figures. Okay. Well, you figure like, well, six figures, he's, he's, you know, he's doing all right. But then you're like, well, wait a minute. He's paying off his, uh, student loans and his kids go to a school and he's got a, you know, some other thing. And like, you don't know what they're actually like taking home or able to save or not. I mean, like a friend of mine, he, he, he made, this is like 15 years ago. He probably made 120 K which living in central Florida 15 years ago 
was uh, was a, a good salary. But mm-hmm. he was he oh, wait, wait, how much? 120k a year. That's still a good salary almost anywhere you are. I I totally agree, but 15 years ago in Central Florida, it was great. Oh, oh big money. But at, he had to borrow money from me occasionally and like at, at be, because there were debts and other issues and things and he was helping support family members and his kid had a medical issue and like you don't know what's going on behind the scenes. You would think, oh, he's rich. Like he lives in this great big house and like they did live in a decent house, but you know, it, it, like you just never, you just never know. You just don't know. And you, you know, the other thing that you take, you can't have to take into consideration are things like, do they live where they, do they have to pay state taxes? You know, do they pay or, or not? That makes a difference. You know, what are their property tax? Like the property taxes here in Austin and Travis County are ridiculous. They're ridiculous how high they are here. And, um, and, and, and like, you don't know something like that. Like I remember years and years ago when I was first entering the workforce, um, one of the ways I learned a lot about system administration and like running Unix servers, which was a big part of my job in the early days and still is, um, was, was on IRC internet relay chat where you'd go in and you'd like talk to other nerds because only nerds use this at the time. And, you know, like you could say, hey, you know, I'm trying to, I'm trying to, you know, back up this one volume and I'm getting this error from the tape drive and like, what do I do? And then like three guys would tell you what to do. And uh, I remember one guy on there, he was talking about, he was moving to uh, California and uh, he was talking about how good his salary was going to be. And it was like double my salary. And I was like, dude, you're going to be freaking rich. And he's like, I'll be downsizing everything to move here. I'm like, what are you talking about? He's like, my apartment is going to cost four times what my home payment cost where I was living. Like, and so there's all of those different things you've got to take into consideration. So if you just throw out a number of like, well, this person earned this much in a year, that doesn't really mean anything until you really know what's going on in, in their life. And of course, everything is relative too. you know, like, um, like I saw one of those, um, those new Corvettes. Have you seen the new Corvettes? Yes. I don't, I'm not a fan of it, but I was dry as I was driving around, I saw this Corvette there and I was, I think it was a Stingray cause it had the little Stingray logo on it. I'm not a big fan of it. I mean, it's, eh, I like the old, I like the old ones. And, uh, and you know, but like I was thinking to myself, yeah, it's kind of cool. Like as a convertible, like it's a nice day. I wouldn't mind being a convertible. Sure. But, you know, like for me, like give me a 1969 Stingray in a heartbeat. Sure. sure. It's all, it's all relative to the person that, that's driving around that Corvette. They obviously like it, right? But well, you can't assume to know anything. Maybe they're borrowing right. it. It's not even theirs. It's their dad's car, whatever. I don't know. Right. But no, I think you should talk to them. I don't think it matters one bit about your, uh, you know, sharing that kind of thing. I mean, I think it's fine. And, and the numbers are never going to be right. And so what if people aren't going to come away thinking that? So what if they do think you're rich? So what? Were they going to take uh, we, money away from the don- donations? Maybe they would. I don't think. I don't think they will. We would like to say thank you very much to Feels. You know what? A lot of us. I'm. I'm including myself in this. You get. You feel. You feel stress. You feel anxiety. You might have uh, chronic pain, or even just pain from uh, from working out. Or you might have trouble sleeping at least once a week. You know, you're not alone. If you have this, most of us, many of us do. Personally, for me, the the game changer for me was CBD. Now, listen, stop. I know you're freaking out because 
you see CBD everywhere. You're driving down the road and you see a thousand signs for it. Every gas station has it. Every single place is selling it. 99% of that is just junk. You don't know where it comes from. They're not doing any testing. They're not using natural ingredients. Who knows what you're even getting? If you're going to get on the CBD and CBD bandwagon, and, and for me, it was a tremendously helpful thing. And I know a lot of other people that it's helped. You want to start and not just start, you want to continue with quality stuff. You don't want to get something just off some random shelf at a gas station. You want to get something that's good, something that's made with all natural, high quality ingredients. And a place like Fields, that's what they're all about. In fact, they test every batch that they create and you can get information about the batch that you're using right on the back of the little box that you get. It is amazing. It is premium CBD. It is delivered directly to your doorstep and feels being high quality CBD is going to naturally help you reduce stress, re reduce anxiety and pain and sleeplessness. It's so easy to use. You take a few drops, you put it under your tongue and you'll feel the difference within minutes. And they even have a free CBD hotline and text message support. So if you're not sure how much you should take or what, what to do, they will help you with that. And it's, it's a really, really great service. They have me feeling my best every day. I have switched to using feels now and you can become a member today by going to feels.com. Let me spell that. It's F E A L S feels F E A L S.com slash roadwork. You'll get 50% off your first order with free shipping. So again, feels.com slash roadwork. You'll become a member and get 50% automatically taken off your first order with free shipping. Game changer for me. Give it a try. They also have a little, by the way, I want to mention, they have a little thing they call a flight where they send you the different strengths of the CBD oil that you can get and you can use. It's really great stuff. And they want to help you. Feels.com slash roadwork. Thanks very much to them for making the show possible. I mean, but even so, like I, I, I forgot the part about the Sean Nelson story that really stuck with me oh, yeah? was that he said, because Harvey Danger had gotten a million dollars from the record label. And he said, a lot of people think that getting a million dollars as a band is like the, like all of a sudden we're catapulted into this like realm, you know, where, why are you even why are you even still in Seattle? Why do you still go to bars? Like you made a million dollars at your band. And I remember feeling that way because the rest of us, all of the other bands in town, we were still getting $250 to play on a Friday night at the crocodile. Like, you know, and if you got $250, you'd be like, yes, we're, you know, you're, we're in the rare group of bands that are making anything. Cause most bands can't even get a show at the crocodile, mm. even good bands, mm -hmm. you know, let alone get one and get paid. And now Harvey Danger's got a million dollars. And Sean said, let me break it down for you. Like here's $1 million. Now you take 350,000 of it or 400,000, whatever it was at the time and just take it away. Cause that's taxes. Right. So now let's say you have 650,000 left. Now your lawyer gets 10% and your manager gets 10%. Right. So now you're talking about $500,000 you have left. Well, there are five guys in the band. And so 
everybody gets $100,000. But, of course, there are a lot of expenses, right? You have to pay for your van that you bought in order to make the tours happen. Right. And the van cost $30,000. Right. And the band has incurred following debts. And in, so he broke it down, basically. And what it came to was that every guy in the band got $80,000, mm-hmm. which was insane to hear it described because although $80,000 was a lot of money, yeah. what we under, what we both understood looking at each other as he was describing this was that that $80,000 was in return for six years of work, six years of of going out with your, you know, carrying your amps out in the rain to some little, you know, dive bar where there isn't a stage where there's just a cement floor and you set up and you sit there all night long and you go on at one o'clock in the morning. Cause that's how we used to do. And then everybody's blowing, you know, a bunch of hostile people blowing smoke in your face and you play your songs until your ears are bleeding. And then you get home at three 30 and you get paid $20 split five ways. So that $80,000, it was just like, it was like a, a bucket of cold water because Harvey danger got paid a million dollars, but Sean Nelson made $80,000. Mm. And And then he said, and also, you know, that million dollars is a recoupable amount, which means that every record we sell, we're not going to see any money from it until we pay that million dollars back to the label. And because of funky Hollywood accounting, that's never going to happen. We're never going to successfully pay that money back unless we sell 5 million copies. So that million bucks is the only money we're ever going to see from the label. They don't come and take that back from you though. No, no, but you have to pay it back to them, um, through your record sales. But if you just don't, how, if you don't sell that many records, they don't, no, they like, don't sue you for they, it. No, they don't want it back. It's just how record labels keep control over records uh, for the rest of their life because they own the record right. and they'll keep owning the record forever. Right. Because you owe, you owe them this money, this fantasy money or this money that they gave you. Um, so basically then the band was back to scrounging a living by selling t-shirts and trying to earn money at shows right there back to basically being a, being a regular band who's going out on tour and the money they make on tour really matters to them. And the number of t-shirts they sell every night really matters. And they're not even able to sell records anymore because they, because the record is being sold by the record label. So they can't, they're not making money on tour by selling CDs or, you know, they get a small fraction, I guess, of what gets sold. It was extremely illuminating. And, um, I think about it all the time. Right. And, And also, I guess I think about the fact that I'm 51 now and I still think about earning money in the same terms that I did when I was 26, 27 years old, Mm -hmm. where it's just like every dollar that somebody gives me, every time I open an envelope and it has a check in it for, for some amount of money, I'm like, wow, thank, gee, thanks. And 
And that I don't think is how most 50 year olds think about the money they earn anymore. You know, when you're 22, you're like, wow, I got a check in the mail. But by the time you're 50, you're like, assume that you're going to be earning money, hopefully, unless you get fired or unless your job is really unstable or unless you're a freelancer. Mm -hmm. If you're making dollhouses, every time you sell one, I bet you do say like, gee, I sold one. And that's kind of how I feel always. Wow. I can't believe it. And, but the downside of that, of course, is sometimes I look at my bank account and I go, whoopsie daisy. Uh-oh. Uh-oh, tanky winky. Uh, anyway, I'm going to talk to the Wall Street Journal. We'll see. Yeah, we'll talk see. To we'll, them. we'll see. We'll see. This has been a, this has been a good year. It has been a, it's been personally validating, but it's also really validated my feelings about people that listen to, that consume the things that I make. Mm -hmm. Because for 10 years there, in the middle of my career, I was living in a world where the cultural um, consensus seemed to be that music, the thing that I made, the thing that I worked for years and years to make, that music was a commodity that, that shouldn't cost money. And, and people that loved my band were looking me in the, in the eye with a straight face and saying music should be free. And I, and if you countered that with some kind of argument about like, why, why should it be free? Like uh, you pay for m books and movies and you pay for every other thing that you consume. Why should music be free? It costs me money to make. If you take it for free, I make no money from it. I can't afford to keep making it and no one could. And if you said those things, people would just look at you straight face, oh, like incomprehending and say, or uncomprehending and say, music should be free as though it was some kind of justice issue for them. And it was so confusing and so disheartening. And it was financially ruinous. You know, it took, it took a lot of um, good musicians and just eliminated. The, they were no longer able to be musicians. And so they stopped making music. And the music that they would have made is gone from the world. Because music should be free, apparently, according to the people 10 years ago. And there, and the arguments that they were making all had to do, there's the same arguments that you hear in Seattle where it's like, well, big developers are ruining Seattle. And it's like, I don't know, man, somebody's got to build the houses and we've been fighting big developers. And so now nobody's building or, or the houses that we should have built 10 years ago aren't built. And now there's a massive housing shortage. So I get what you're saying about big developers, <laughs> but at the same time, like this kind of anti-development activism is actually a form of nimbyism and it's ruined the town or it plays a role, a major role in ruining the town. But the, but the, the people that are against big developers feel like they have justice on their side. And so they don't take responsibility for having ruined the town. They double down on big develop, you know, on hating development. It's like there's, 200,000 more people in Seattle. Somebody's got to build a house for them mm -hmm. or they're going to buy grandma's house 
and either tear it down or make grandma's neighborhood unaffordable for grandmas. And you're going to hate that too. So you got to like, you got to think it all the way through, right? And just hatred of rich people or hatred of development, that's not a, that isn't a philosophy. It's just, it's just a reactionary stance that, that in the end indicates that you don't understand the, how systems work. But to have lived through that period where people were telling me that the thing that I made had a lot of value to them, they Mm -hmm. wanted it, but it didn't have any, but they weren't prepared to pay for it. And now be living in a world 10 years later where I think it's a lot of the same people who are a little bit older who are willing to say, I'm voluntarily going to pay some small amount to listen to this show that I like Mm -hmm. because I recognize it's my responsibility or recognize that it is just, it's part of how money works now. People that are setting up all these things where it's like, yeah, it just auto pays to my Hulu and it auto pays to my nest and it auto pays to everything auto pays. And so it's not alien to also set up a thing that sort of auto pays to the, to the people that make the things that they like. That's like, I never would have believed it. Right. When, during the music is free years, I thought, well, everything I do from now on is just going to be stolen from me. And I'm going to be told by some kid that, that I should make a living selling t-shirts which honestly, I heard it over and over. Oh, bands just make money selling t-shirts anyway. It's like, fuck you. Have you ever sold a t-shirt? Do you know like what the returns are on a t-shirt? Like basically people were telling me that my job was to schlep cardboard boxes full of shirts around the country and play for two hours in the hopes that someone would pay me $15 for a shirt of which when all was said and done, I got $5. So, you know, that was my job. They weren't going to buy my albums anymore. Oh, don't get me. I mean, I, I was about to say don't get me started, but I was already started. I'm so happy that <laughs> the last year has turned out the way it has. Good. And and I want to, you know, I want to I want to celebrate it somehow in a way that doesn't Cause all this money talk, I mean, I'm sure there are people listening to the show that are like, ugh, money. Don't talk about money because it does, it makes us uncomfortable. And I really think that that is some kind of Presbyterianism, some sort of, um, I don't think that for instance, I mean, I have no idea about what other cultures, like whether in China or India, the, um, people talk about money differently, more freely. Uh, more candidly or whether the, whether it's even more guarded and whether that's a thing that's, that's natural to human society, keeping wealth or lack thereof secret from one another, whether that is actually something necessary for the smooth functioning of human interaction. I don't know when I, if, if I knew how much you make a year, Dan, I don't think I would be mad. I think you'd feel Man. sorry for me. Well, right. <laughs> I think you'd, you'd, I think, yeah, I would, I think you would you would send me money. I think I would feel sorry for Patton Oswald because I know how hard he works 
and I have a sense of where the money comes from. The only thing I don't know is what his checks from King of Queens are like. Right. I know that Duff McKagan makes money by the bail, mm. but Duff McKagan is in Guns and Roses. Right. <laughs> like, yes, thank God he makes money by the bail. Like, I believe it. But only if you won the if you won the super Powerball lottery, you would have as much money as Mick Jagger, and that is crazy to me, right? That there are people who have done, there are people whose only job is some kind of investment banking job where they stand in between large transactions. Mm -hmm. Their job is to stand in between a telecommunications company and a bank. And because the transactions are very large and because of the way investment banking figured out they could charge a percentage of everything that happened, a very small percentage or a, even a not very small percentage of this transaction between a telecommunications company and a bank results in a person whose name we will never know, who lives in Connecticut somewhere, having as much money as Mick Jagger. Mm -hmm. A person who I think has contributed immeasurably to the cultural patrimony of the last 60 years. For 60 years... Mick Jagger has been adding a tremendous wealth to the world. You can point to what he's done and say, without the Rolling Stones, without the cultural contribution of Mick Jagger, we would be living in a more impoverished world. And so for him to have 300 million or so dollars feels right. But, for some guy in Connecticut who works in a bank who went to the University of Pennsylvania to have $300 million mm -hmm. because, because he works in a business that figured out it could just situate itself in between things and just take a little piece of everything that goes by. And if people make money, they take a little piece. If people lose money, they take a little piece they're always taking a little piece. And that was just a trick that somebody saw. Right. And the telecommunications company doesn't miss that $300 million because it's a, it's a $900 billion yeah, deal. They don't notice the difference. That is the injustice, right? That's the thing where you say, I don't, you know, for Mick Jagger to have $300 million is a thing where, uh, I mean, at that point, like, I don't know how much a million dollars is worth, but if like he should be rewarded, I think because, because I treasure his contribution and honestly, probably so does the investment banker. He's probably sitting right now high on cocaine at his desk, dancing around to jumping Jack flash. That's, uh, <laughs> that's pretty specific. Of what? Of an image. Yeah. But, but it took you there, didn't it? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh. <laughs>